You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features Louis from Pop Pantheon, a really fantastic show about pop music that I was recently on. I, I was on his show to talk about Scissor Sisters. Highly recommend checking that out. I think we're both very proud of that episode. Um, and I was just thrilled to you know have Louis come on because he's such a great guy to talk to about pop music. Uh, we talk about his history as a DJ. We talk about uh, the, the birth of Pop Pantheon and how he does the show. We talk about a lot of different pop stars along the way, including you know, Miley Cyrus, Beyonce, Rihanna, and, you know, and down the line. If you're into pop music, this uh, conversation is for you, and I think Pop Pantheon is absolutely for you. Just as a reminder that... The uh, Flux Blog Patreon. You get extra episodes every week. It's five dollars a month. Uh, there's a huge archive at this point with all the the you know bonus episodes and mini series and archival interviews, all sorts of stuff. It's a lot, of, lots and lots of goodies. Uh, five dollars gets you a lot, I think. A few years worth of uh, goodies, anyway. Also, just want to let you know, uh, next week is going to be a cool episode. We're going to have Eric Renner-Brown from Billboard, and we're going to talk about uh, the uh, the touring music industry. That's his main beat uh, for a while, and he just recently moved over to Billboard. Uh, let's kind of check in on what's going on uh, with, the, with that side of things. But uh, anyway, let's look at to it. This is Louis from Pop Pantheon. Louis, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Well, I'm Louis. I am a DJ, but I'm also a jack of many trades, which I won't get into the long list of them because it comes across as millennial malarkey, I think. But <laughs> as of right now, for the purposes I think that make sense for this show, I also host a podcast called Pop Pantheon, which is sort of like fantasy football for pop fans or something along those lines <laughs> right and, and i met you being a guest on that show which was you did a, an absolute delight we talked about scissor sisters if you have not listened to that episode i strongly recommend that you do one of my uh, all-time personal faves i have to say you were uh, fantastic so yeah you were I, yeah so i great. mean i feel like we actually converted some people with that episode to scissors, for sure sister, scissors scissors fandom and if we do no more good work on this earth, that is one thing we can present at the pearly gates. So I don't know, tell the people like, what is the, the, the premise of the show? Like, how does it work? So each episode of Pop Pantheon focuses on a single pop star and me and a guest dissect their career from every imaginable angle that I can possibly wring out of them in the course of like two hours. So we talk about their influences, every moment or relevant moment in their discography, videos, performances, you know, their impact, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of that conversation, so I guess to finish that thought up, we, we try to present like the most fully fleshed out, dynamic version of what their career and legacy has been. And then at the end of the conversation, the guests and I have a conversation where we rank them in the quote unquote pop pantheon, which is a system of tiers I've created to divide up the world of pop stars. And it's everything from tier one, which are essentially like the icons 
of the genre, the people that essentially you can't tell the story of pop music history without mentioning these people, you know, your Michaels and Beyonce's and Madonna, Prince, you know, those type of uh, iconic stars. And then all the way down from there, you've got megastars, superstars, you know, what I call working class pop stars. Uh, who's, a good, cut, uh, who's a good example of working class pop star? Like Selena Gomez or like, uh, like you Demi know, Lovato. People, Demi Lovato, like people that are, I sort of see them in two kind of rungs, which are like pop stars that are constantly around on like the C squad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, wait, like I, I have a question for you. Have you guys done Alessia Cara? No, but she would be absolutely in that tier. And I was thinking about her recently in terms of like, you know, I think she's probably not satisfied with her career, but I think in a way she is like won the lotto because she gets to have like several hit songs. She has at least four or five really huge songs, Mm -hmm. but no one cares about her. Like, yeah. She, I mean, I'm sure she has some stands, but like she doesn't have like psychopaths. Like, I don't, you know, this is like, she gets <laughs> yeah. to just be a person. Yeah. I mean, she might be tier five, honestly, because I think in order to get to tier four, you do kind of have to have like a little bit of a longer run of like medium success. Like when I think about Selena and Demi, I think about the fact that they've been churning out like top 20 songs yeah. for like the last decade. You know what I mean? I mean, Selena so, Gomez's music career seems very secondary now. It is. It is. Being an actor and TV person. It is. It is. But the thing that's interesting about Selena is that she's actually made some pretty good music, which is mm-hmm. funny because she's not, I don't think a great musician on any front, but she's she has good taste. She's got good taste and she's made better music than I think her two adjacent Disney peers like Miley and Demi, who are technically more talented musicians, but I think have had trouble finding like a feasible musical identity. Whereas like Selena kind of has that without the chops, which is more interesting. I don't know if I agree with that on Miley. I think really, I think Miley Cyrus really found her lane. Um, Which is what? I think that she is basically like the pop star for people who are like, kind of want rock and roll karaoke. I think like she's really mm-hmm. kind of found herself in that. Yeah, maybe like, lately. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she had to kind of swerve out of the lane that she was doing very well in, which is like the bangers era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I love. I mean, I, I I really do like enjoy some of Miley's like wild ride of a career just as like sheer experimentation in terms of a person, like trying to locate a prop yeah. persona for herself or she, a musical I mean, she's, like, she's Little Miss Wild Girl. Yeah, yeah. And that's and I do also like about her that she seems to be willing to like nuke her commercial fortunes like at every turn. Like she hasn't she's not like, you know, she's been willing to take wild risks. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think I mean, I think I think she does that in part because she knows that she can just kind of swerve back to doing a power ballad and things will be fine again. Like that's I mean, that's the thing that she has over most of her peers is that she can do a, a power ballad. Yeah, she has a great voice. I mean, I love Miley, and I and I agree with you that I think that lately perhaps she has settled into something that feels like a comfy aesthetic for her. But I think for most of her career, it's been defined by having no musical identity besides just being Miley, quote unquote. Yeah, just being a bad girl, you know. Yeah, just being like a little bit of a of a yeah, as you said, kind of like a bad girl who like has no reverence for any like history. I mean, like just kind of like tries on whatever I mean, feels good to her in the moment. But like. Comparing her to Demi, Demi does not really seem to have any identity to me at all. 
<laughs> like it's very yeah, hard to get I agree a clear read on who they are. I agree. I think Demi's entire discography is, you know, a series of stumbling into a decent hit, but ultimately is not very interesting, especially for somebody that like seems to have a very interesting personal life, a a an interesting life that they've tried to mine in their work, but I don't think particularly compellingly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they are not the best at sort of taking what could be interesting material out of their personal life and making it into music that's actually like interesting or worthwhile for the most part, in my I opinion. I think even knowing like a bunch of Demi Lovato hit songs, I don't, I still don't think I would recognize their voice. Yeah. They have like a very good, but not particularly like distinctive voice. Whereas Miley has that big voice. Yeah. Yeah. Selena yeah. Gomez has that kind of like, Cool. Tiny, cute voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Selena has, as Joe Coscarelli, who was my guest on the Pop Pantheon episode about her, says, like, one of the most pleasing speaking voices in all of popular culture. Oh, God, that's absolutely true. It's, mm -hmm. I was actually just watching the most recent episode of uh, Only Murders in the Building just before. Yes. And, like, mm -hmm. I don't think I, I, I formulated that thought, but... Yeah, this is an absolutely fantastic voice. Yeah, it's like I, ASMR. I, I love fully. I love Selena Gomez's cooking show. Yes, it's so, she's very charming. She's super down to earth. She has a very appealing personality, and she seems like actually, uh, like weirdly grounded for someone who was a star starting from when she was like eight years old. It's kind of shocking, yeah. actually. I mean, I think that TV show almost is like showing you exactly how that happened and why it is. Like, it right? Seems like a, there's some effort put into that. Yeah. I imagine all the endless places I could know If I drop, drop, and I'll let you go All the possibilities I got from head to toe Yeah, they'd, yeah, they'd, yeah, they'd start to show And I might as well just tell you while I'm drunk, yeah The truth is that I think I've had enough Emotionally messing with my health How could I confuse a shit for love? So I gotta get you Okay, so you have like these tears and... I mean, so where do where do we land? I mean, basically, Sister Sisters landed into basically a cult classic zone, right? Yeah. So there's like an adjacent tier to the main five that are what I call niche legends. And you know, one thing we run into quite a bit on the show is people's differing impacts in various marketplaces, and the fan base is always up my ass about me being too American in my perspective on things like Kylie Minogue, for instance, or on, there's been just a lot of artists that we've come across where it just feels like they belong in different tiers depending on where you are, which I think applies to the Scissor Sisters who, as you and I got into detail about, are like really successful pop, mainstream pop stars in UK and a lot of Europe and Australia and really never had anything more than kind of a cult following here. But to your point, I have a tier called Niche Legends, which are pop artists that don't have traditional metric kind of like hot 100 hit single hits or sell like a ton of records, but are like cult 
phenomenons who are super influential and like have long careers without needing to have that. So Scissor Sisters, we put in this category in the United States. I think of like Charlie XCX in this category, Carly Rae Jepsen, Robin, you know, there's a group of artists that have probably like had either one or no real hits in the United States, but still subsist as cult figures. So that's where we kind of put Sitter Sisters in, at least in the American context. At this point in your run, have you basically run through all the big dogs? Does all no. of them be in that top category? No, we withhold them. Uh, you know, we're, we work really hard to present like a diverse array of artists in terms of both how they present themselves and their music and also like where they fall in this system. And my goal with this show is for it to run for a long time. So we try to only give you know, a couple of the huge artists per year. And the rest are really like an idiosyncratic mix. I mean, this year we've done everyone from Duran Duran to, as you mentioned, Scissor Sisters. We've done, um, I'm drawing blanks. We've done Cindy Lauper. We've done Nelly Furtado. We've done, you know, so it really can run the gamut. Sorry, I'm just pulling my phone up to remember yeah. what we've done. And there's year. always new ones too. But I mean, yeah. right now you're in the middle of a four-part series on Beyonce indeed like, you know as, as big dog as you can be indeed so big four episodes four guests mm-hmm. it's uh been a undertaking we and we also threw it it was a last minute decision usually we're pretty ahead of ourselves because these episodes are like a little bit of labor intensive to produce um and so when Beyonce announced her record with six weeks notice, we sort of had one minute to make a decision. We were like, are we going to embrace this and try to, you know, produce something timely related to this? Or are we going to like not? And we decided to. So we pulled it all together really, really quickly. And it was an absolute fuck face whirlwind crazy <laughs> madness. I literally cried numerous times during the production of these episodes, but they are, I think, some of the best we've made so far. And because we separated them out into four parts, we really get to like dive deep into every single one of her eras. And I think she deserves it. I mean, Beyonce is really the type of artist who's had the level of impact in the pop world where like she merits this kind of deep dive and each of the I mean, eras. If she only did Destiny's focus. Child, that would be true. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I think because she's such a thoughtful artist, there's so much to say each time, like, you know, how much is going into each of these projects in terms of how she's attempting to position herself in all of these different lineages. So it was really fun to get to split them up this way and get to like, seriously, like dissect this. And I think it's some of our best. Uh, episodes yeah, yet. I mean, it, it seems to me that you in doing that, you really get like, you get to look at like four distinct eras of feminism, even beyond her, mm -hmm. you know, or like approaches to politics and race politics. Well, yeah. Because I feel like it evolves with her. Like the, the, the person she is in Destiny's Child is not, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of through lines, but it's definitely right. from, from where she ends up on Lemonade. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the having to take it all in in one swoop as i did in prepping for this it really did highlight a lot of the through lines like there are so many things that beyonce is returning to from the beginning of her career through the present day themes of ecstatic monogamous love themes of infidelity themes of uh disparaging gender dynamics and also this interesting battle within herself I think that plays out through her work between 
her feminist ideals and her desire for conservative gender roles. Like she is, she is also economic roles as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, she's her, her, there's no distance. Huge through line for her. For sure. Well, there's no distance. Well, it's cap. It's not just capitalism. It's capitalism and wealth accumulation in the context of romantic love, which is a thing. Yeah. Upgrade you is the ultimate. Upgrade you ape shit. She talks about it constantly. And it's really fascinating to think about I've thought in this recent swing about one sort of story arc or or narrative arc in Beyonce's career being this exploration of one monogamous relationship because how many pop stars do we have in history that have been in one relationship through their entire career and have also devoted a lot of their artistic like oomph to exploring what that relationship is but especially once a complicated one exactly with another really famous person but and you're the most famous black and most powerful black couple, you know, probably in popular culture. So, you know, it's, I've thought this time through, interestingly, and this is music I've engaged with so much over my life. So it was interesting to kind of have this click in a new way for me this time. But I've kind of wondered whether the one narrative arc that's sort of defined her career is, you know, why do men wrong me? And that you can you can trace that back to say my name, Bills, 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 Bugaboo, through me, myself, and I, all of B Day, uh, you know, numerous songs on four, obviously, and then, you know, all the way through Lemonade, where I think in some ways she finally answers that question for herself. And by linking her own story to intergenerational trauma into the history, uh, you know, the brutal history of America and of black American history, she was able to potentially provide an answer to the question that she's been probing for her entire career. And that was kind of the thing that like moved me the most in this particular engaging of her entire discography. One of my favorite things that she's done a lot through her career, like as a kind of a lyrical theme or, or structure is there's so much negotiation mm. like negotiation and maybe maybe from a different angle sometimes it's like plans like she's like mm. setting out plans mm. like i've like one of my favorite songs of hers is get me bodied and i've always oh, yeah. loved the way that she's talking about going out to party as if it's a military strike that she's yeah. planning with like her, <laughs> with her army of girls oh, hold, um, hold on let me just stop my dog from barking because he's gonna go sure Yes, go on. I mean, that's very Virgo of her. Yes, but, well, uh, she is nothing if not the the prototypical <laughs> Virgo. But yes, that is she's, really she's what, our greatest pop Virgo. <laughs> yeah, I um, love it. You, as she literally says, mission one, mission two, mission three. Exactly. <laughs> oh God, I, I've always loved Bidet o- over like, a very kind of like yeah. militant spare Swiss Beats production that also kind of lends itself to like that sort of jagged edged kind of like salute and march military aesthetic right like you can definitely do like janet jackson rhythm Nation yes thing to that oh one. absolutely absolutely oh god yeah like but yeah there's like so many songs that are just kind of like negotiating roles i think there's a mm. lot of that on uh, on uh, beyonce the the self-titled record mm. i'm thinking of check on it is absolutely one of those mm. i think a lot of destiny's child stuff is basically that where mm-hmm. you know I, I i like that idea of like she's kind of uh it's conversational, but she has like a uh, a goal, mm. and she is going to attain this goal, and she has to talk you through this. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's even like browbeating to in certain in particular songs, but it's like like Beyonce kind of approaches everything with goals in mind. Oh my god, I'm sorry, I keep touching your dog. 
Um, no question she's goal-oriented. I think that manifests also in the ambitious nature of all of her work. I mean, she is certainly nothing if not somebody that's able to create a vision and then deliver on that vision like in the most maximalist, exciting way possible, especially in the later part of her career. But I agree. I think a lot of that negotiating has to do with the fact that there's a sort of contrast in Beyonce between the performance or the achievement in many instances of pure perfectionism, which defines her artistry, her performance ability, her sort of virtuosity as a pop star, and this sort of fractured interior life where she is navigating some really seemingly oppositional uh, dynamics related to how she views herself as a woman and how she views herself as a feminist. And I think maybe that's part of what you're picking up on is yeah. she is- I think there's also a thing with her where it's like, she's very careful about what she lets you know about her. Mm-hmm. She certainly is. So, but at the so same time, I think she's she in those unintentionally- songs, She's still yeah. like guarded. She is. I think there's been moments in her later career where that guard has come down, yeah. especially more on Lemonade. I think Lemonade's a pretty raw uh, record where she, exposed a lot of things that I think she did, as you're alluding to, try to keep obscured in other parts of her career, especially related to her relationship, which I think is the kind of crucible of her artistry in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think in some cases, like, she probably felt like, well, the cat's out of the bag. Bay as well yeah. just take, you know, well, just really go there. I think well, people want, I think she felt emboldened by Beyonce, the yeah. success of that record in so many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's always going to be her her greatest triumph. I think that's mm-hmm. the record that changed everything for her. Like there is a sure. before and after that. Yeah, like, I think absolutely. It's funny because like people can almost forget that she had like, these kind of fallow phases, like you know, yeah, songs that just kind of like you know they did okay, but they were basically flops. Yeah, like a no, lot she's never, she's never, that. she has, she's been a a deceptively light on terms of like pure number of hit singles compared to like somebody like a Rihanna, you know. Yes, I mean when I worked at Rolling Stone, I uh, it was when Four was out, and I wrote an article kind of comparing the uh, the Beyonce's uh, chart. Uh, performance versus Rihanna's. And Rihanna was like absolutely like destroying things. I mean, mm-hmm. Rihanna, her her chart career is just like almost unparalleled. Yeah, there's very few people who have been as just like monstrously successful mm-hmm. on a mm-hmm. single front as her. Mm-hmm. Like Drake, I think The Weeknd. I mean, I, I it's it, it can only really be compared to contemporary hit makers because the game is just so. Well, different. I think you could put her like with Madonna and Janet and Michael and some of their like. Huge I think that's fair. I think, but 80s. I think, but they're just so much less productive. <laughs> yeah, no, she. I mean, there was she was at in beast mode for like those that period of like six or seven years where she did yeah. six or I mean, seven it, albums or something like that. I mean, it makes sense why she just backed away from it because like she was yeah. just like so Exhausted. profoundly overworked for so yeah, long. I like I, I don't, I, I can't imagine she's eager to. Jump back on the treadmill, especially no, but when I, she has like this other massive success. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, just with Beyonce in terms of the visual album, I mean, one thing that's always struck me so much about the last now more than 15 years of Beyonce's career is that beginning sort of in earnest and not super successfully with four, but definitely with the visual album and with Lemonade is that she has managed to make her impact as a pop star about something greater and other than hit singles, you know, and that's been very fascinating to watch because the truth of the matter is... The thing I was kind of driving at with that Rolling Stone article from this God is like over a decade now. Mm -hmm. Um, was basically that she would, she had remade herself as an album artist. Yeah. And but, she showed other people how to do that. Like people yeah. don't, she doesn't need, like it's almost like 
like chart placement is beneath her. Like I yes, think Kanye right. West did that. Yeah. A lot of people basically mm-hmm. moved in that direction. Yes, exactly. Like, You're a major superstar, but right. like the chart stuff is beneath you. Like you yeah. don't have to cater to that. Yes. You know? Yes, no, exactly. And, she, and, like, and, and that was like the way she really changed the game. It was so, it, she completely changed the game and it was very ingenious. And it also is a interesting framework for Break My Soul in this new record where it seems like she's pivoting out of that somehow and attempting once again to play with having a hit single for better or worse. And that's kind of been one of my, the more interesting facets of a song that's not particularly interesting. <laughs> How has Break Your Soul been doing on the charts? It's a it seems to me like it's a moderate hit based I think almost maybe more on just like you know anticipation than perhaps its own merits. I mean, I don't really know. I had Jason Lipschitz from Billboard on the show a couple of weeks ago and I asked him like is Break My Soul like a legit hit and he said it is like building at radio, which means that it's not just kind of like streaming on interest and having like a big couple first weeks before disappearing. So, maybe it is a hit, but I don't know. I I mean, I don't know how you feel about the song. I'm I find it like kind of like a six out of ten for me personally. I like it a lot. I mean, it's not like a god tier one for me, no. but I like it. More it's just than, funny to hear. I mean, honestly, her in I like it more than most of the songs on Lemonade. Oh, I'm, see, I'm, I know I've that this is. I know so this is a widely Lemonade. right. I know this is a widely held opinion about Lemonade's music and the critical community. Rich Joswiak shares this opinion with you. Wait, wait. Really? Because yeah. my understanding mm-hmm. is that critics all think Lemonade's the best one. And I think Lemonade's generally like speaking, the fourth yeah. best of the solo records. Mm. I, you know, I, 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 go, fall on it. I just think, this is what I think. I think with Lemonade, you can't consume it separate from the film really like to get the impact like it's one of those things where like the film and the music are kind of one thing and it so is the music is so elevated by what's happening in the film and makes more sense in the context of the film. I do agree with you that like if we're just thinking about it like hit for hit for hit for hit for hit or song for song for song for song for song, let's say like maybe it's not as great as the film itself. But yeah. I kind of have trouble thinking of them as like divorced from one another. And I think, I the think film I've is only so incredibly powerful. Once. You should revisit it. I mean, I watched yeah. it. I rewatched it obviously in preparation for our series, and it is a marvel. It is just I incredible. Say, I would say on the whole, I'm not really into Beyonce's videos. But this isn't like, a Beyonce's there, there's, video. There's some this that is I think are just like um, incredible, but for the most part, like her video aesthetic is not really my video aesthetic. Like Single Ladies and Crazy in Love, those are two of the best music videos ever made. Yes, for sure. For sure. No, but I think what sure. artists like hold what artist has yeah, what artist has con- like has like consistently iconic music videos? Like aside from like Madonna and Janet, yeah, and Michael. But I, I think even beyond that, like just like just like my taste in in film, because it, I don't even think like Beyonce's videos are bad or anything. It's just it's not really my vibe, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I just <laughs> you think when you like, really, I, it's like I, I'm like I don't really like how that shot. I don't like when that, you really think about stuck. it though. Like, how many Rihanna videos do you really remember? Like not a ton, honestly. Yeah, I don't think, I think the most, first most one that comes to mind is "We that. Found Love." Yeah, same. And like "Rude Boy," which had like kind of like an MIA vibe going on to it, and like and like I don't know, like so I'm saying, like a lot. I don't think music videos make the same consistent level of impact in the internet no. era. Without MTV, MTV, it's very era. hard for yeah. them to have. Like, yeah, like like there obviously there are this tons. The formation of video been, is yeah. fucking incredible too. Yeah, that one rocks. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I I actually think back to what you were saying about the visual album. Oh, I love the EXO video. 
Yeah, I could take or leave like half of those videos on the on the visual album, like going back to them. Like, of course, it was all incredible and when I first consumed it. But look, the visual album is kind of the opposite of Lemonade for me, where I feel like it really like I love listening to the music and I'm like I find the video, the video for every song thing a little bit tedious. Yeah, I'm kind of glad she's that doesn't seem to be doing that right now. What's that? She is wait. Is this new record that's coming out like a week from when we speak? Yeah. Is that one also going to have videos for everything? It doesn't. We seem don't. Like it. We don't know. But the 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 vibe online seems to be that it's going to be another kind of album film in the style of Blackest King or Lemonade because she hasn't dropped a separate music video for Break My Soul, which is kind of like leading the buzz to be that there is no separate hmm. music video. It's all just one part of one giant film that's going to drop with the with the album i guess i'm just like really old-fashioned it's like now i'm just going to listen to the record and like, yeah. i'll check out your video like once yeah <laughs> I, I mean i'm with not you. i'm not a experience huge, it it takes a lot for me to really like a music video i mean i i tend to not care that much about like your run-of-the-mill music video i i think that music videos do have trouble making the same level of impact that they used to make and that as we just were sort of getting as a function of internet culture, as opposed to like having MTV playing them in our fucking faces all day. My feeling is that I don't think it's a good idea for her to do another one of these like full album things. Cause she's mm. done it like three times now, four times. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know. It just seems like it's like ho-hum for her. Like it's, she's been mm. there and done that. So well, it seems like, yeah. like doing something different is the way to go. And it seems like right now, just like, you know, even just having the record be like announced like a month in advance and, you know, having a lead single, kind of an, like an old fashioned rollout. Um, and then on top of that, just like it is, it seeming to be at least a, a one or two, like a two, at least a two part record. Yeah, so, um, that's I've heard three, but yes, at least it's yeah. I mean, I don't I agree with you. I mean, I think it could be tedious. I mean, and the other, you know, sort of subterranean layer of that is that Black is King, her extravagant hour and a half movie that she made for her like companion album to The Lion King. And that was which for came Disney, out, right? Disney for yeah, the bill on that one. And and made very, very little cultural impact. So, you know, and I think maybe that was a sign of fatigue about the visual album thing. I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean I I have no insider knowledge as to like what she's gonna do, but that's just the vibe in the sort of buzzy online Beyonce. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like she's she's the kikiing, as the Scissor Sisters would say online. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'll I will always have time for her. Although I will say, like, she's coming off like kind of two records in a row that I don't really care about, which is the Lion King record and the one with Jay Z. Yeah, I I I think that that's true, but I but I sort of like I'm like, are those canon? You know what I mean? Like it's like I mean, I would say I think that the Jay Z yes. record is like tour product, and like yeah. the Lion King thing was like a lark. Right. I mean, they're they're it's, it's enough that you can be kind of, you can kind of be like, well, this is, this is the follow up to Lemonade. Right. You can absolutely straight facedly yeah. say that. Yeah. But she has made two entire records that I don't really care about. Yeah, so, I think that. that but I like, think that. I mean, prior to Lemonade, unbelievable to me. I agree, and also I would recommend returning to the gift because it's actually pretty good. I think everything is love is kind of seems half baked to me in general, and maybe maybe the only Beyonce record that I would deem that. Like I don't love a couple of the early Beyonce. I mean, I don't love like Sasha Fierce or whatever, but I think it's not half baked per se. I think that. Everything is Love is the first Beyonce project that I listened to, and I was like, 
I don't feel like he really like developed this as far as it could have gone. Yeah. It almost like seems distracted. The yeah, Carter's think... record is just weird because yeah, I agree. Like, like having Lemonade and 444 exist where you mm-hmm. have both of these people like kind of exploring like the same ideas in their very personal ways. I think 444 is one of Jay-Z, Jay-Z's best records for sure. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, or like definitely his best latter Certainly period. his best later work. Yeah, like, for it, sure. But I, I mean, I, I guess the I, competition I isn't one very... of his better records for sure. Mm. Um, I should go back but, to that one. But, I don't but, think. But I then you come to that record and it just feels like a, like a, like a press release. Mm-hmm. Like, I agree. That's what I said. Decided that this is how we yeah. feel about our relationship. Yeah, it's it's super surfacey compared to two records that were very emotionally complex and dense for sure, and also is kind of like one of the grosser representations of the sort of capitalistic wealth accumulation themes that God, the two of them right, and also kind of treating their children as products. Yeah, I mean, I felt that way about. I mean, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, was the moment in Jay Z's discography. That, that's where a I rough was one. Like, I've that's had a real it. Rough I was like, one. this is disgusting. I I said at one point, I can't remember which guest I was talking to, but like the Jay-Z and Beyonce wealth thing can some like on the one hand, of course I understand how they're contextualizing it and sort of accumulating wealth as two powerful black people as almost like reparations. And I really understand that element of it and it makes sense to me, but it can sometimes start to come across as like Marie Antoinette and Louis the 14th, like just like throwing cake at the plebeians while we're all starving in the streets or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it just feels like, Something. I mean, I, I I can already kind of sense it in uh, "Break My Soul," like where mm. she's singing about someone else who's having a, a rough time economically. Yeah, it's like okay, that's a good pivot. <laughs> yeah, or is that? Like, let's, or let's is not, that patronizing? Let's not think too much about Beyonce right now. Let's or think is about it patronizing? I'm not sure. I I've heard it received both ways. Mm. I'm I'm willing to just be very gracious about that because okay. I think it's also good for her to write about things other than herself. I, I think agree. That's good for most people to do, to, to mm. at least sometimes. I think that'd be interesting because I do think she's mostly written about herself over her entire discography. So that's an interesting framework. I think maybe she's going right. To, I mean, that's maybe she's going to give us the folklore treatment clunky, on right? this to some people that because yeah. like she's trying to write from outside of perspective. I don't find it clunky. I just find it so down the middle that I'm like having trouble adjusting to that version of Beyonce where like, I feel like she's made incredibly idiosyncratic choices since four more or less. And like, it's a little bit strange to hear her kind of make a song that I could hear other people singing. Yeah. I don't know. I think I was also just excited to hear like that kind of like mid nineties crystal waters kind of sound where it's like, okay, wow, we're doing this. Yeah. (laughs) I was excited about that too, but I wanted, I guess a little bit of a twist on it and it just felt like very down the middle. That was my feeling. Yeah. It's interesting though. I'm curious whether that's just kind of like, you know, one song among the many or if like a lot of the record will feel like that. I actually feel like it's probably an outlier. Well, the credits came out, so we have some indications of what's going on here. But there's there's a Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder have a credit on it. Mm-hmm. Niall Rogers has a credit on it. So okay. both elements that would point towards an exploration of dance music on some right. level. Right. It sounds like maybe it's kind of like we're gonna I'm gonna take you on a tour of the history of dance yes, music. Yes, yes. AG Cook, Charlie XCX really? Andre is listed as a as oh, a producer. No kidding. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Good yes. for them. They deserve yeah, the money. I agree. And also that's, I think that would be a smart 
pivot for Beyonce or a smart class. You know, a rumor that dropped yesterday and got quickly squashed was that Max Martin had written and produced one of the songs. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But in the track listing that came out, he's not there. So I guess that wasn't true. That's for the best. I feel like yeah. I feel like that's a real desperate move. Or is Beyonce the type of artist that could utilize Max Martin to her will? I mean, I think Max Martin in his it latter career. It could happen. Career, I mean, the yeah, weekend like, look songs at the weekend. that are with exactly. him like, yeah. don't necessarily sound like Max Martin. No, I think the weekend songs with Max Martin are the best weekend songs. That's what I think, personally. I think the I think Max Martin in his latter career works well against an artist with a very established aesthetic world and maybe a darker edge. The combination yeah. works well. I mean, it, it seems to me without like where's the Max Martin Billie Eilish com- <laughs> collab? Like I'm ready for that. I think without knowing a lot, I just feel like he probably settled more into like a Rick Rubin editor mode rather mm-hmm. than like yes. I'm going to actively write this for you mode. Yeah, well, he's always been a real collaborator and I think mentor to a lot of people. I mean, I, as you, you can look at his discography, he's constantly like in cahoots with a series of people for a period of time that he's clearly like ushering into pop greatness. What is your general feeling about Max Martin? I love Max Martin. I mean, I think Max Martin is... I feel like you almost have no choice but to like Max Martin just based on like just the sheer number of like undeniable songs. Yes, he's incredible. And also like he's a... He's, Martin. he's pop culture cockroach. I mean, it's unbelievable yeah. how how he sustained his hit I think that's why I arrived at that kind of resentment though. It's like, this guy's still going. Yeah, but like to the extent that this, to the extent that he's still making songs as great as Blinding Lights or whatever, like it's yeah. worth it, I think. I mean... I think he's also had an interesting run over the last few years where he's kind of adopted his approach once again to sort of like be subservient to the artists he works with more so than yeah. he had been in the past. And that's fun to listen to. I think Taylor helped him sort of figure that part of his, his career out. Yeah, because like she's not going to budge. No, she's and also I not, think she's not going to not be Taylor Swift. No, no, and also we are never ever getting back together, which is their first record together. Was one of the first times I heard a Max Martin song that felt like an equal parts both the artist and he. You know, it, like I don't feel like she lost her Taylor Swiftiness, in right? The because what you hear from him is really it's purely structural. Yes, exactly, and it's also nodding at her aesthetics. Like it's got elements of the country aesthetic she was coming out of in just bringing it into a sort of like brighter sheened pop world. And I think that he's done that effectively with her. I think he's done that effectively with Ariana Grande. I think he's done that effectively with The Weeknd. So it's been an interesting pivot for somebody that was initially seen as a real Sengali and a real control freak in the sort of Britney Backstreet era. He's so, right. I think he's, Whereas I think he's now he's kind of become like, uh, okay, if you are... Um, I only work with megastars. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I will, he's all I will, over the will, Lizzo album too. Yeah, I will let you retain your megastar status for mm-hmm. about, for the, for a price. Exactly. And I do think that that's it, he bent, when it works it really does work. Like and that and I and I mean it about Billie Eilish. Like I would be interested to hear what someone with such an established world and sonic like universe would sound like with Max in the mix. Do you see her like working with other people because it's like, gonna it happen like her, her partnership with her brother seems like almost like the whole deal yeah but i mean a lot of i mean at some point yes i do think it's gonna i agree that they obviously seem like partners to some degree but at some point 
in her career. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be soon, but at some point we're going to hear her work with other people. Every pop star who's like been known to have like a soul set of collaborators at some point steps outside of them. Like Janet at some point oh. left Jimmy and Terry behind and made a record with Dark Child. And, you, you know, you know what might be a good analogy for her is that she might kind of be like Annie Lennox where, mm. you know, like with the arithmetic, she's always working with Dave Stewart and then she eventually goes solo. And she, it's, it's funny to go solo from yourself as a solo artist. But you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> it seems like eventually she's going to get to her, like, what is, what is it called? Medusa? Yeah, but um, it, yeah, exactly. But it's, but I think that is instructive because I do think the quote unquote Billie Eilish project to this point has been defined by their collaboration. Yeah. And so I I'm, think that's I'm, it doesn't actually seem like they have any incentive to not keep that going. No, yeah, I mean, I think she almost has to hit a wall to be like, okay, let me try. Yeah, but that will inevitably happen. I mean, as someone who spends their entire life, like looking at the long arc of pop careers, like, let me tell you, they all hit a wall at some point and they have to figure something out. Oh, it's else impossible out. not to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were just talking about the Beyonce visual album, a great example of someone who had kind of hit a commercial wall and had to figure something else out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the only way to avoid it is to stop. Like so, Rihanna, you know, Rihanna stopped, right? The Beatles stopped. Mm. You know that, like that's stopped, or or your career is ended most, one way or another. Most pop stars, given their like level of insane ambition, which I largely believe is driven by like an unfillable hole in their hearts, I don't think have the ability to stop themselves. Only the rare few. Yeah, I mean Rihanna's eventually going to come back. That's kind yeah. of a given. So, I hope. But, yeah, but to, but to take a one long hopes. break. One hopes, I don't know, as each passing day goes by and she's now starting a family. I just feel like I kind of agree with what you said earlier, which is that like she is she's had it and she has not much else to prove. So oh, she's she just... absolutely nothing to prove. And to go out on top like <laughs> yes, she did. Exactly. It's just like she has I can see her maybe at least doing a big tour or something. <laughs> well, I mean, we'd love a tour. And also, I mean, anti presented some pretty fascinating new musical directions for her to go in and helped establish her as someone that could, you know, be making weirder music, which I think I'd like to hear, you know, I think I'd be interested to know where that would go. So I hope that she's not done. I think I saw, uh, Tim and Paula a few months ago and when Mm -hmm. they they were playing the song, uh, same old person. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about like the degree to which like their career just leveled up almost entirely because Rihanna. Yeah, was like, I want to I cover that song. <laughs> Absolutely, I mean, she... like, and that's just like a bizarre whim for her. <laughs> that whole that that album is f- defined by bizarre whims that like shouldn't work but do. I mean, I think that's kind of like the whole thing of Anti is like, okay, sure, like a full blown Tame and Paula cover where we're not even altering the instrumental. Like, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do these like weird yeah, unfinished yeah, fifteen. Right. It's basically just karaoke. Songs. Yeah, it's li- it's it's like and like you have these couple of songs like James Joint and like yeah, I said it that sound like they didn't totally finish them. You know what I mean? Like it's just is it's like a tumbler as a album or something like. Oh, that. that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, she's really putting together this like a lot of ideas. Like, but I think she just kind of met the moment perfectly on the exactly. It's funny because I, I don't think I really. I think it's taken me a long time to like fully appreciate her. Cause I think for a long time she was just kind of like part of the, the firmament and you could just be like, ah, all right. Yeah. Uh, but now having that distance and I think maybe that's one of the best things about her having done this, that, you know, it actually can be clear to me that like, Oh yeah, yeah. That, that last record auntie is just like, that's the, the that's the fully formed version of right. Her. 
Right, because she has a loose casualness to her persona that is reflected in the music. It's also know? the apex of her, her as a singer. With oh, for sure, on the she brain. sounds and what, yeah. What's the other song? It's somewhere that I can't remember. The Higher. Title. Yes, thank you. Yeah, with the drunk dial song. Oh, God, Yet another like incredibly on, strange song, but amazing. I, I think that like it would be pretty easy to dismiss her voice beyond it just being interesting and cool. Yes, but like I mean, just kind of proving like no, I am. I can destroy you <laughs> absolutely no she really she's like someone who's vocal soul. talent yeah real she really developed that voice really developed into something great over time yeah and i mean and it, it happened to beyonce too i mean beyonce was always a technically obviously more proficient and like better singer than rihanna was but her voice changed quite a lot through the course of her career went from this like very kind of like nasally thin thinner sounding soprano into this much huskier deeper more dynamic yeah. thing over the course of her career and as always like the the secret weapon of beyonce is like this the absolute like few people have her level of breath control oh my god it's listen to like... one plus one on on four <laughs> for go no further i got to see her perform countdown live because mm, uh, I, I I saw the because she played some shows at the Roseland Ballroom uh, mm-hmm. before. The, yeah, the I went to that movie. too. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's like, wow, like you actually did that. <laughs> oh my god! And like, you could and you can kind of see her struggle through it. It was not mm-hmm. easy. No, but... I mean Countdown is a fucking cacophonous, like you know, like whirlwind of a song. Countdown might be my favorite. I've I agree. Always really a, adored Countdown. I, I've been thinking a lot about what my favorite Beyonce songs are. Obviously, having just like listened to them all so much just in the last couple of weeks, and Countdown definitely, definitely in my top five, no question. Well, let's let's pull things back a bit. So mm-hmm. let's talk about like your past and your and what led you into this. So you were a DJ. Like, how did you become a DJ? Well, I was always just like a music fanatic person. I spent a lot of time in my high school years just like basically sitting alone in my bedroom and trying to listen to everything that I could get my hands on. And it was just always like a really point of huge fascination for me. My dad is in the music industry, so I grew up like in a kind of musical family. And I was in college actually, and I had you know, dabbled in like interning at music in music situations. Like I did an internship at Columbia Records. I did a few like internships and I just knew pretty clearly that I was not meant to be like on the business side of anything. And it was actually my mom's idea. She was, she was like, I was, I don't know, a junior or senior in college. And she was like, like, what do you think? You I, you should try DJing. She, I don't think she had heard about it from some, I don't know, what what does she know about DJing? But she suggested it to me somehow. And I ended up uh, taking a class at Scratch DJ Academy, which is like a place <laughs> where you can learn to like DJ. And everybody in the class dropped out like before we got to the end of it. Like by, it was like in the first class. Oh, like you're, every, last man standing. I was last man standing. Like every single person, like, cause it was like the kind of thing that a lot of people I think like did for fun, but then realized like is technically like kind of hard and you have to like practice it. And so as the course went on, like by the time we got to the end of the eight or 10 weeks, it was literally like me and maybe like two other people. And I impressed my instructor enough with my like devotion, I guess, over everything that he agreed to like help coach me further and then like got me my first couple of jobs in New York. And yeah, and then I just kind of like threw my back. You know how things are, Matthew. Like it's like 
I don't know. At some point, like all of a sudden I woke up and I was like, okay, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> it just was like, <laughs> yes. I was like, okay, amazing. All right. This is what's happening. And like, yeah. And then in my early twenties, I started a party with a friend of mine that became like somewhat successful on the Lower East Side at this club called the Eldridge, which no longer exists and was like this super. All good an, clubs no longer exist. Yes, exactly. It was like, a good it was, club has a lifespan. It was very pretentious. Like they only let 80 people in at a time. And like it, looking back, it was, it had some bad business practices, I think, but it really okay, helped. What were, you, what were you using for DJing? Were you like using Serato or something? Yes. Yeah. Always Serato. Okay. Serato. At this time I was using Serato and, uh, you know, vinyl v- with vinyl control records. Um, and so, you know, it was like, it's basically you DJ as if you were crate digging and DJing, but it, what Serato does is allow you to just not switch records, like going into a crate, picking a record, switching the record out. You're just essentially assigning these control records to an MP3 on your computer. So you're mixing and, and doing all the stuff that, you know, DJs have always done, but you're just, it's just much easier and has really changed what the art form of, you know, open format DJing is, which is about mixing records really fast in short order together so you're moving through in a four or five hour set you know three and four hundred songs so uh anyway yeah so then so yeah basically so, so what, what, what were your dj sets like like what was the vibe you were going for? always just really pop oriented i mean i've always been somebody that just like i've never been like a pretentious music listener like i just don't i've always been very comfortable with the fact that like pop music is my oeuvre and like have never really felt like compelled to like try to be cooler it's always funny because people hear i'm a dj all the time and they're like so what's like the cool new artist i should be listening to i'm like i don't fucking know like that's not what i pay attention to that much i'm much i've always just been interested in pop and pop history and how pop history fits together and i'd say that that's where my dj sets also reflected without me knowing it is that like I would always love to find connections between like contemporary pop songs and then pop songs from throughout history and try to construct my sets to tell some sort of story in that way which is something I refined over the course of my career and and also you're you're doing something where you know people are very likely going to dance whereas yeah, there's so well, many I, mean, God, I, mean, hope. I I did some DJing um like in kind of like the early phases of Flux Blog and the aughts I, I would mm-hmm. be asked to do DJ things mm-hmm. and you know, trying to kind of keep within, I guess, the brand I had established of kind of like alternative underground pop kind of stuff. But, you know, that's kind of like hit or miss. Right. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there, there's various approaches. I mean, I love going to hear DJs that play like shit I've never heard before. And you're just like, yeah. what the fuck is this? I mean, that's totally incredible. I mean, it's just. But it's my... so satisfying when you make everyone dance, though. Yeah. It's and so and that's and to me, that's kind of like where the art and commerce of DJing like really exists. Like a great DJ to me, like, and the thing is, if you're doing a great set, you can throw things in there that like, if you have the crowd, you can start to throw things in there that they don't know. And that can start to, you can start to expand that, but you're really creating a commune, like with the people that you're playing for. And I'm just such a crowd pleaser. And it's not a compromise for me. I mean, a lot of my DJ friends would be like, Oh God, I, I don't want to go to work and play Rihanna and play LMFAO or whatever the fuck was big at that time. And I was like, I can't wait. I love all this. Shit. You know, I, I, that was always my thing. So I think that, I always, it was, it never felt like a compromise to me because pop music has always been my fascination and being a, and like communing and having that amazing experience together with the crowd has always been the thrill of it for me more so than like getting to masturbate musically on stage or whatever. 
Right. And you're not necessarily like moving into like wedding DJ territory. Well, I've, I mean, I've, Matthew, I've DJed a lot of weddings in my life. Yeah. I, I mean, that's wedding, not really disparaging, wed, though. Wedding? Mean, like, wed, no, no, no. It's, so, I mean, so, okay. So, what, what's a good move for DJing a wedding? Like, what is, like, what, what is your philosophy with that? Well, what's my philosophy now? What is it? I mean, it's all different. Everything's Yeah, let's, let's talk about 2022. I mean, now I don't really try to do any DJing shit that I don't feel like me and where I'm going and what I'm doing isn't like aligned with what I would want to do anyway. Like I have reached a point in my career at this point where like I'm not trying to show up and like get told what to do and how to play and like, you know, for the most part. But I think, D- but I think to, to DJ a wedding, you have to think about the wide range of people that you're playing for, which is very different than you would be in a club. You're dealing with, let's just start with age. You're dealing with people often from the age of five or six to 96. So there's an element of trying to figure out how to give a music selection that's going to speak to all of those people and sometimes and are you one. getting like instructions from the bride and groom or bride well it depends bride i mean groom you, or whatever it's going to be I, I as i said i think these days i really am working in situations with people that are coming to me to have me play what i do what i do at their weddings which is a great gift that i think i've earned over 15 years of doing this professionally but yes for most of my career matthew i mean i was like the ultimate gun for hire for a lot of my 20s i mean I would, I could show up and do anything. And for the first part of my career, before I like had some uh, important reckonings with myself and my sec, my uh, my identity as a you know what my my sexuality and my identity. I mean, I was out of the closet, but I was dealing with like some internalized homophobia shit. For the first five, six, seven years of my twenties, I only DJed in kind of like models and bottles, straight clubs like in the meatpacking district like you know of the one oak variety so i was very much playing like lots of contemporary hip-hop and stuff that like now i i'm totally out of touch with but i was the ultimate gun for hire and i think you know maybe when you're starting out as a dj that's an effective thing to do you should really learn how to like respond to what's happening in front of you how did you get booked at those clubs well, I had this successful party that I started with my friend, as I was sort of talking about earlier, that then exposed me to a lot of people in nightlife. And from there, my career just really kind of went from there. Like it just became a self-fulfilling thing where people would hear me in clubs. I was DJing three and four and sometimes five nights a week in New York City every single week. And it would just become people would hire me. I'd get clients. I got in with places. I did a lot of events. You know, I still do that, like a lot of, you know, private events, fashion events you know, media events, whatever they are. So it just kind of like became a word of mouth, self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point. I was just working a lot. So it was like, I was exposed to a lot of people all the time. How did things change when you moved to LA? Well, I mean, I had been in a lot of like a questioning mode about DJing, generally speaking, in the couple of years leading up to the pandemic, you know, just felt like I had been doing it for over 10 years at that point. There was a certain, like any job I'm sure that anybody's ever had, even if it's a really fun one, there was a certain feeling of like, I've been there, I've done this. I feel like I've been doing some version of the same thing for the last 13 years. Is this something that I want to continue? Do I want to just keep doing it because it's comfortable? Is there shifts I should be making? And in fact, I went away on a trip to South America about a month before the pandemic and I came back 
And I said to my family, one of my family members, I was like, you know, I really wish that I could just move somewhere else and like try something different. But I just feel like my DJ career is just, you know, largely rooted here in New York and it's just hard to stop it. It just kind of is this thing that goes on and it's comfortable. And then literally, like, I don't want to say I manifested the pandemic, but literally. <laughs> I would literally, hate that if you did. No, I know. I'm so sorry to everybody. But I, but literally, <laughs> I, I, that, like, after, like, I said that and four weeks later, my entire DJ career went up in smoke, like, just went away. And I just couldn't deny that that was like kind of a crazy turn of events in my personal life. And that was what precipitated the move out here. I was just like, all right, well, now I don't have that excuse anymore. So if I'm ever going to try moving somewhere else, I'm going to move and do it now. This is my moment. Yeah. So, well, so was that basically what set the podcast in motion? Yes. Just like not being able to just be a DJ anymore? It's, yes. Basically, I was. I spent a year doing basically nothing. I was literally like in the dark, in a complete dark night of the soul, like meltdown. I was just like, what is my life? Everything I've worked for for the past 13 years is gone. And simultaneously to that, I had spent five years developing a television series based on my DJ career uh, that I had shot a pilot for. I starred in it. I wrote it. It was like this whole thing. And, oh, wow. and simultaneously to that, I, uh, that had ended. That journey had also come to a conclusion in like February 2020. So I was really like rolling into the pandemic with like an identity crisis going on. Um, and yeah, and then I, I came out here and I spent a year like, like just kind of like sitting in my own shit, which was good ultimately, but very challenging. And I did like a, like a, a very like hokey, but I think rewarding manifestation workshop online and it one of the things that it helped you do was kind of like just see what was right under your nose like helped you kind of see like what are the things that you like to spend all of your time thinking about that you're not like capitalizing on exactly and it was just staring at me in the face i was just like i love thinking talking sharing talking to other smart people about pop music i'm a big pop music podcast consumer and i feel like the the space is lacking at the moment. What, what, what were the ones that inspired you going in? Other podcasts? Yeah. Um, I mean, I always enjoyed listening, obviously, to the New York Times podcast. I liked Switched On Pop. I felt like what was going on was that there wasn't an, like enough of a smart conversation in the podcasting space devoted specifically to pop and pop stars. I mean, I guess Switched on Pop gets into this a little bit, but I just felt like every time I'd be listening to the New York Times podcast, I'd be like, every time they do an episode on like Taylor Swift or on, you know, one of the pop girlies, I'd be like, yeah, I'm so excited to hear all these like smart people dissect this. But then there'd be like tons of episodes on rappers and like lot and jazz. And like, that's all great. Like, I think it's a fantastic show. But I was just like, I would love to hear a podcast that had like really, really really smart people talking about just pop and pop stars. And I was like, who, who if not me, who, if not me, Matthew? And that and was, that was how it came to, and it worked. It worked. I'm, I'm completely astonished by how it's gone since then. So I think the thing I was wondering about is this kind of like in doing this, you essentially made yourself like a pop critic, a, a music mm -hmm. critic, mm -hmm. um, but in kind of a, a new way. You yeah, know, there's I, I think like between this and YouTube, there's just kind of like this whole new generation of people who I, I don't know if they always think of themselves in this in, in the same terms that like the people who are more writing based. do. Sure. Like so. But you do like I mean, a lot of your guests are kind of traditional uh, music writers, yes. music journalists, music yes. critics. So 
what has that been like for you kind of growing into this role and also kind of like what, like, what do you get out of like the, the writers and people that you've had on the show? Well, it's a true honor. I mean, I have always revered good music critics. I mean, I've always looked up to them and I also attempted to dabble and I did a lot of freelance writing, never got like fully into it, but I, you know, I did, I, I wanted to be part of that community always because I love, I, I mean, as I think is probably apparent, like I love ch- talking about this shit. Yeah, it's and your I love, people. It's you know? my people. So I always felt like I wanted to be part of it, but I wasn't fully part of it. And I also felt like, you know, when I'd pitch myself to review something for Pitchfork or whatever, I felt like I wasn't taken like particularly seriously by the people there or whatever. And that's fine. I'm not saying that as like a a diss, but it was maybe these days. Yeah. (laughs) But I, (laughs) but I was, but I was just, I always wanted to be in the conversation with all of them. So the answer to your question is it's been fucking iconic. I'm like beside myself thrilled every single opportunity I get. And I can't believe how many incredible people, yourself included, have agreed to come on the show and talk to me because it is... You've had a real murderer's road. It's really like some of the best people going. I mean, at this point, it's kind of like, wow, who is he not head on? Well, there are certain people that we chase and chase and chase to no avail, but for the most part, (laughs) for for the most part, it has been astonishing. And I'm so grateful because frankly, you know, not, not to like diminish myself, but like the show is really as great as the people that are coming on the show and do and committing to a pretty heavy lift. I mean, my podcast is like, you got to come on and you've got to like, it's, it's tough. I mean, I, we get to the end of recording. (laughs) Right. I remember you sending me like a kind of like a prep document that Mm -hmm. was very involved. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. Yeah. I have to to really, yeah. It really reads out. It reads out the week. It reads out the week, Matthew. No, but, um, but, but but I I also knew like, I didn't have to send you anything. I had, having already talked to you like no no this is easy i'll just talk to you yeah (laughs) yeah no for sure i mean i can i can blab about it but the thing is that we follow such like an intense structure and we have to get so much in in such a short amount of time and i like to prep people to prep because i like them to know that like hey we've got a lot to get done and like i want you to be ready for that (laughs) you know what i mean like we're gonna we gotta move through a lot of shit but a lot of times i get to the end of recording and like the person will look at me from across the zoom and be like oh my god like that was so intense and i'm like i know i'm sorry i hope that you'll (laughs) do it again like in two years maybe or something i think the thing that i found like kind of funny about this the prep document part of it was like man i honestly love doing the podcast part of Fox blog because i don't have to write anything yeah <laughs> well you're right you're a writer you're writing more often than me this is like my version of i guess like writing something it's like it also is I, most- I feel like so much of my career as a writer has mm-hmm. just been trying to write as little as possible. Like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm kind of naturally wired towards brevity, but also yeah. just like uh, one of I'm the, the most recent jobs, job jobs I've had. Um, I kind of learned after the fact that a lot of what I was doing is in the industry called microcopy. So that's like the smallest writing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Brevity is not me. my it's strong like, suit. That's like, I'm the opposite of you. <laughs> I, know I, I love people who love can just brevity. like write and write and write and write. Yeah. And then they have to edit it all down. It's like, why would you write more than you need to? Well, that, I mean, welcome like, to my struggle with the the show. Thing, like People who would hand in stuff to editors where it's like, like, like a thousand words over the, what it's supposed to be. It's like, they're not paying you extra for that. No, 
<laughs> I just, I get it though, because I, I too do this and I'm trying, this is something I'm really trying to work on with recording is that I'm trying to shorten the recording sessions because it, I also edit the show. So, which is by far the heaviest lift of the entire like process oh, yeah. of making one of the episodes and they're heavily edited. So it ends up being like, okay, cool. Yeah. I did get to like get three hours of content out of this, but like now I have to shape this into what is supposed to be a 90 minute show. So <laughs> <laughs> the joke is on me at the end of the day. So, like, who? What, what are some artists that you, you're planning on doing in the near future? Uh, I mean, once you're out of the woods with Beyonce, like, what's what's coming up? Well, I'm not going to reveal because this is part of the fun. I think for people listening yeah. to it is the surprise. But I, or I guess, like more broadly, like, what, like, where do you want to go with things? I just like to continue to expand the scope of the show because, as much as I do love delivering kind of the down the middle faves that the audience loves, you know, they all, I, I they're literally, whenever I put out a, Hey, who do you want to hear more episodes on? You know, the same five names come back 80% of the time, you know, what like names are those? Brittany Taylor. It was Beyonce. We have now alleviated that stress from people. Mariah, um, you're, you know, you're saving those for a ring. Yes, exactly. Like if I give that all away, like everyone's going to stop listening. So I, but, but frankly, and I, and I love, uh, you know, when fans of the show say this to me, I love it. And I agree with them. And a lot of people said this to me about our episode on the Sinner Sisters that like, they actually prefer the episodes on artists that are like less obvious to them that are like, oh, cool. I get to discover something new or I get to remember something I wasn't thinking about or whatever. So that's right, right. I think it's also interesting to kind of like do them or Duran Duran where it's like they're, they're pop bands. Yes. And with Duran Duran. It's a different Duran, dynamic. Yeah. And with Duran Duran, like an artist like Duran Duran, like I truly went into that knowing like not much. Like it was really one of those things where it was like a true education for me as well. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm going into these episodes and I'm going to be able to like contribute as much as the other person. And sometimes I really feel like I'm just a student like listening and asking questions. Wasn't that one with Annie Zaleski who wrote the book on Duran Yes, Duran? exactly. And, yeah. it, and it couldn't have been with anybody who was less knowledgeable about Duran Duran because I truly was a neophyte. Like I was like, you know, I, I did my best to do my due diligence yeah. before. But, but you got I to really... be kind of like the, the reverse of dynamic in some way. Exactly. I like, I enjoy both. Cause sometimes it's fun for me to just get sit back and get schooled. You know what I mean? And sometimes I have so much to say that I have to be like, shut up and let the other person talk. Cause they're smarter than you. So just stop talking. So, so where did you personally come through on the other side of Duran Duran? Like what was the uh, um, impression of Duran Duran? Like, I was now. I was happy to like have that gap in my pop knowledge filled in, but they're just not particularly like my thing. Like I, I just find it um, like kind of, it's weird because I think they were sort of like denigrated as like not rock enough or whatever in their time period, which is like, kind of code word for like not masculine enough i think somehow but also or, i mean i think it really was like they were like their audience was mostly teenage exactly girls. exactly but i just like find it like i'm like, too young for duran 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 I, was like enormously popular yeah. when i was a kid but yeah it was kind of it's weird because like they would be enormously popular at the same time as like prince and madonna but like prince and madonna were kind of coded like oh this is for everybody whereas duran duran like oh this is for girls who are older than me you know, it's so funny. I have, that's my point. Like, I have no context for that. Like, that's what everybody. It's absolutely Gen X girls. Yeah. that's the right. audience. For right. I, I, I don't know. I just find it a little bit like 
like icky sleazy like i think hungry like a wolf is like a creepy fucking song like oh, I, mean, it's extre- that- I mean it's also extreme cocaine guy music cocaine guy music exactly like it's and it's also very 80s cocaine guy music where there's like literally like i'm on the hunt i'm after you it's like nobody wants to hear <laughs> that that's like very that's like frightening like yeah. and i find a lot of their songs it's a, it's a bunch of horny pretty boys who just yes. like, are doing mountains of below yeah and that's not for me like i'm ultimately as much as i like to explore lots of different kinds of music and i appreciate lots of kinds of music like i'm still like a 35 year old gay guy who's gonna like not be into like I'm that's not my thing i'm not God, like, you know what the, one of the most brutal ironies of duran duran is like people being like oh they're gay it's like no this is the straightest music ever made it's so straight that's what i was trying to say <laughs> like it's very very straight feeling like there's not i mean they look you know there's, i guess some of their like aesthetics like visually could like code as yeah because they have some femme quality yeah like, but no but the glam music, boys but yeah the like, music are just like yeah straight guys who are just trying to fuck models and exactly. Exactly. Like their audience is teen girls who want to exactly fuck them. <laughs> exactly, like, exactly there's almost no homoeroticism no no and it's like and they're so kind of like filial to these like rock gods that they like are clearly obsessed with that it's just it's just not particularly my oeuvre but i was happy to learn about it and i'm always touched like annie's passion for them like made me get into it i was like yeah i love how obsessed you are with this and like i'm fascinated by that so i was happy to learn about it and that's so when you ask what i want to do moving forward it's just expanding the scope of like what this show can do and what it can cover because i think right or, or what what is pop music yeah what is pop music because that's kind of one of the fundamental questions at the center of this and so it, it's a pretty it can have a pretty expansive definition i tend to say that if you've if you've had something amounting to a hit single you kind of qualify like if yeah. you've been on the in the upper reaches of the hot 100 like you're kind of pop on some level what's the most rock you've gone probably duran duran yeah <laughs> like so yeah the, the, i think you can kind of like tease in that direction for, for sure. sure i'd love to do like a u2 episode you know so uh, one thing that many guests have have pitched to me but i haven't yet clicked into is coldplay um oh coldplay would be yeah. fascinating it's funny the how coldplay, many of your brethren I think, this, I think this point are just purely pop There's as, just barely as anything it's, else. it's quite amusing to me matthew how many of your colleagues brethren whatever music critic people are like want to do the coldplay episode like i've turned down at least three people that they're i can so, think of right now who yeah, like have asked i think they're just the interesting episode. to think about now yeah yeah, I agree. Also, also, there's so few artists who have kind of had that kind of level of constant success. Certainly, anything that's like resembling a rock band, like yeah. they have been constantly successful for over 20 years. Oh, I agree. They are very worthy of an exploration in this yeah. way. I also would like to push more into like Absolute rap. Absolutely, into- those guys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and also like, I mean, I have a lot to say about their recent music, but whatever. Um, I. I also would like to push further into like rap. Like I think we, you know, it's at the beginning, I was a little confused about how to handle this. We did an early episode on Drake. We've done episodes on, you know, Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. I think I would let, I mean, I'd love to do an episode on Jay. You know, I think, you know, rap was something that I grew up in New York. So rap and that kind of golden era of rap was like a huge part of my childhood and like a big part of my musical foundation that I would like to explore more on the show. I mean, I think what's interesting about those people, the artists you've mentioned, is that you can look at their career as rappers, but to look at their career entirely from the angle of pop star, that is completely different. Exactly. To look at Nicki Minaj from a pop angle is to completely... Because I mean, that's an artist who's just been on a fault line the entire time she's been absolutely, active. and as a, and and 
it would be disingenuous for us to say that rap isn't pop. I mean, rap is the yeah. most popular genre on earth. So I want to make sure that the show is like responding to the reality of what the situation is, which is that this is pop music. Like this is pop music. And the artists that help facilitate that are artists like Jay-Z and Kanye West and all these people that helped kind of lay the groundwork for for Nicki Minaj and Doja Cat and all of these people that like are somewhere in the mix of the middle somewhere where it doesn't need to be even differentiated out. They're just like both pop and rap stars all in one. I would be pretty excited to hear something that's just like an entire episode about Akon yeah, no, well, that's yeah, like, that's like guys like that yeah. who are like real pop presence, no question, like flow rider. Yes, you know, like it's like who, who only like rap people who only really exist in the pop realm. Yes, well, I think we also want to try to do some more omnibus episodes where we cover like a bunch of different people in a grouping. Like, it could be fun to do yeah. like Akon, T Pain, like do a whole bunch of yeah. them. And, um, yeah, I love that idea. All of those like little kind of like niche phenomenon artists who are like really fun to do episodes on not just because like it's fun to remember like them and give them like give them attention but also because it's really a a blast when there isn't so much music and we can really like spread out on like you know a few like records or whatever like sometimes i get like oh my god we have to move through so much material like we don't have time so i really i really do i love that idea akon would be fun t-pain would be fun i love those ideas so people have to Subscribe Pop Pantheon. Yes. Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. And also we're How on... many episodes deep are you right now as of the Beyonce episodes? Well, we we now publish weekly. And so every other week is a main episode where we cover an artist's career in the way I talked about earlier. And then on the off weeks, we do what we call B-sides, which are kind of like lighter topics where we talk about something related to pop or, pop or the pop pantheon, but isn't like an artist deep dive. So we've done episodes on like the Song of Summer or like on MTV's TRL or on Bloghouse. We did an episode on Bloghouse. We've done episodes on... Um, you know, Super Bowl halftime performances or the Grammy. So we publish every week. So altogether, there's been, I think, like seven, uh, 60 or 60 or so episodes. And there's been like 40 artists, like deep dive main episodes so far. Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's a lot of stuff for someone to catch up on. Uh, yeah. You've got I, your faithful. You know, out of pure vanity, I say start with the Scissor Sisters. Episode. I agree. I, I have been going around lately and listing it as one of my top favorites that we've ever done. It was really, yeah. and also the ultimate gay straight alliance where a gay guy and a straight guy came together to elevate the LGBTQ agenda. So, you know what I'm saying? I think, During like, Pride actually, Month, I, no less. <laughs> I think I realized like, man, are you sure you want to talk to me about this? No, I did. I think it really helped. I think it made the conversation richer, honestly. And also I really did love your reviews of them, especially of Nightwork. And that was how we, that was how it came to be is that we were, me and uh, my, I have a very, I have a part-time assistant who helps me just execute this. And we were sifting through who to have on the show. And I was like, when I remembered your review, I was like, oh, we got to have Matthew. I was just like, I just remember loving that review so much. Yeah. Well, I love doing it. I would love to do another one. Yes, I'd love to have you back it. on this too. This is this has been. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Anytime. It's so uh, likewise, and we have to figure out another way to get you back on the show. I'm sure we can think about someone that's exciting for both of us to talk about. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.